Hi, everybody. So before we get started, Maggie and I have a really exciting announcement to make. We joined the Frolic Podcast Network. So the Frolic Podcast Network is a podcast community for everything romance and romance-related, but it's not just romance. And a lot of it is kind of girly, bookish content. And it's really fun, a little bit nerdy, and we're totally, totally excited about it. So if you like romance fiction of any flavor, the Frolic Podcast Network includes shows that feature book club-style discussions, like us, author interviews, comedy, critique, and fantastic conversations. So go ahead and give them a check out, and we're super-duper excited. Okay, bye! And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we've got a very special episode because we've got some guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves, please? I'm Angelica. I'm completely illiterate, and I am a lesbian. I'm here today to be on the podcast. All right. Do you want to introduce yourself, second guest? Hello, I'm Amory, the second guest. I don't read that much, so my relationship to books is kind of nebulous, and let's not talk about that. I was in college. I would not have called myself a feminist. I think I was skeptical about the need for feminism, and I don't think I was ever like a frothing at the mouth misogynist necessarily, but I think I sort of got a lot of joy out of seeing feminists get owned and things like that. And I think the thing that sort of made me really change my mind on that was I watched a video about trans violence and just sort of, you know, the grisly murders that have happened to trans women. And that sort of made me realize that femininity is itself a threat to a lot of people. For example, I don't, I don't even want to say the slur, but T-R-A-P is a slur for trans women because the idea in some internet circles is that you are trapping straight men into thinking you're a woman. And I, I just find that so disgusting and offensive. And that's sort of when I realized the need for feminism. And I'm here to talk about, I guess, the Asian American experience and Asian American allyship. uh, Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, everybody. I'm glad that you shared that with us. So this episode is a response to the Asian American violence press that has been happening in the media. Maggie and I were talking about it, and I was like, hey, I think we should do an episode about this because I feel like I need help unpacking some of the stuff that's going on and some of the conversations that are happening around Asian American violence. And I'm just saying Asian American because it's easier for me than saying Asian American Pacific Islander, but I am loping that in to that topic. So we picked out a poem that we're going to read on the podcast. But first, do we want to give people a little briefer on some of the atrocities that have been happening? Miss Mags? 
Yeah, sure. So, of course, this was an episode that I think was probably most directly inspired by the very tragic hate crime that happened in Atlanta that has been, in my opinion, really falsely boiled down to solely being a mass shooting by definitely the police and a lot of press media and trying to ignore what to me feels like a very clear racial intent as part of that. And of course, on account of the fact that Asian American hate crimes have been severely skyrocketing in the US all across the country as a misguided response to COVID. So that's why we wanted to bring on some Own Voices guests to share their experiences as they're comfortable and talk about this poem with us and we'll have some fun. So do we want to get into the poem? Does everyone feel comfortable about that? And then talk about other stuff afterwards? Maggie has guiding questions for everyone, because I too am bad at poetry. (laughs) I mean, they're kind of shitty guiding questions, but we can go from there. So it's called Barbie Chang Got Her Hair Done by Victoria Chang. Barbie Chang got her hair done for the school auction. She was afraid sick of the circle since she heard of their... Shopping for matching dresses, so out of the nest she flew. Into the auction thinking she could outmaneuver her... Loneliness, thinking she could overcome being classified, thinking... She could be an agent of her own classification and came... The circle dunk-tossing coins at baskets, one in pink, one in... Green, one in orange, one in purple, matching floral. Barrettes glowing like a rainbow that seemed low enough... To reach to touch Barbie Chang would never admit it, but... She still wanted the rainbow to rain on her, to wear bows in her hair that meant she belonged somewhere else. She owed it to... Her children to make friends to blend into the dead end. All right, fabulous. So I think part of the reason this poem feels like it reads kind of weird is because Chang wrote an entire book of sonnets about her mother, Barbie Chang. And sonnets always read strangely out loud, in my opinion. But if maybe we want to start there. That's one of the things I noticed too. So I didn't know that the book Barbie Chang was about Victoria's mother, but I thought the name Barbie in it... I think it is. I don't know. I thought the name Barbie in itself was really fitting for this poem. Because Barbie invokes an image to me of a very stereotypical white image of beauty. And this poem is about blending in with your peers. I was a liar. It's not about her mother. Barbie Chang is made up. So just ignore me. (laughs) From what I read, it's not about her mother, but it wouldn't surprise me if it were about or at least inspired by her mother. It does seem that this Barbie Chang character throughout the book is this sort of suburban Asian mom character who is afraid of the circle, who, based on what I read there, this group of, you know, white moms who are kind of popular and they they keep this like kind of click mentality going on. So yeah, it it wouldn't surprise me if Barbie Chang were kind of the author's mother under under the hood. Yeah, me either. I thought it was really interesting to uh, talk about the circle as kind of these wasp PTA women. That was sort of how I pictured them at the very least. I had an interesting time. I don't know about all of you reading this poem, I think almost separately from the rest of the book, because it does feel like a part of a larger narrative. Did you all get that sense as well? Or did you feel like it sort of read contained? Because I ended up being unsurprised that it was sort of part of of a larger set of poems. I certainly felt a little bit like I I wanted more of this world and more of this character's, you know, view on things. And I did kind of get the sense that maybe this was one piece from like a set or something like that. But I, I didn't... I I didn't guess a book. I mean, taking the poem just as its own self-contained thing, I don't necessarily get the sense that 
she's a PTA mom as opposed to like an insecure teenager or even a middle schooler. I thought that too when I read it. I didn't know that it was PTA because I didn't do enough research. (laughs) I didn't know who Barbie Ching was until you guys just told me now and I was under the impression that this was an insecure teenager as well. I think either reading is possible. I, I feel like part of the point potentially of this poem is a feeling of outsiderness, which is, I think, pretty specifically related to not traditionally fitting in with the rest of this group of ostensibly white women. But I think that in either context, whether it is, you know, the voice of an insecure middle schooler or kind of an adult woman, it's pretty potent. And I feel like it also speaks to the fact that for a lot of people, the insecurities we grow up with don't necessarily go away as adults, they kind of take a different form. Yeah, I guess you're right. The fact that it transcends both teenagehood and adulthood does lend itself to the fact that this doesn't go away. You are still on the outside. That's an interesting point, Maggie. I wondered if you guys, Maggie was talking a little bit earlier about stanzas. And one of the interesting things to me about this poem is the fact that it leads so many, where it cuts off, right? Of the nest she flew. You're supposed to just go into the next stanza, but because it cuts off there, it makes me think that each stanza is invoking hope and then trying to trap her, right? I don't know. Do you do you guys get that sense? Like shopping for matching dresses. So out of the nest she flew into the auction thinking she could outmaneuver her loneliness. That's how I read it in my head. And it adds a very different meaning if we stop right where the stanza breaks. Her loneliness, right? It, talking about outmaneuvering her, that invokes for me like an image of a different lady. And then, I don't know, did anyone else get that? Or is that me being bad at poetry? I don't know. I definitely understand what you're talking about in the sense that it's possible. Okay, so for a poem like this where we are getting very distinct vibes of either extremely clicky PTA moms who have not escaped that phase in their life where they're still acting like they're in high school or of actual teenage girls who are in high school and have those click dynamics because they're simply too young to have escaped that at that point in their life. It does invoke the image of, you know, mean girls. There's one big mean girl and she kind of sits on everybody. At least that's the stereotype. I don't know how universal that experience is. I blocked everything out about my middle school and high school, so I don't even remember. Yeah, the trauma was too great. I also tried to take that out. No, I think that there's I think that there's a point there though. And I think that what I was starting to get at when I was talking about the stanzas is that to me, Chang does something really interesting with the sonnet structure here, because typically sonnets talk about couplets or a, a specific strict set of lines. They talk about meter, which I think that Chang does, but they also typically do a rhyme scheme, which the author doesn't follow. So I think that a lot of what happens with the stanzas here is this almost start-stop feeling where you're made to be forced to feel kind of uncomfortable because you are trying to fit this one very specific, very deliberate structure. And the speaker is trying to circumnavigate that and be herself while simultaneously trying to fit in with her new dress at the school auction and these rainbow barrettes. So I feel like Chang is able to do something really smart and interesting here by keeping certain aspects of the sonnet structure, but also breaking others kind of purposefully. Yeah, it's symbolic of just how we exist in assimilation culture, essentially. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So are you guys saying 
that you think this idea using using the sonnet structure is a way of trying to assimilate a greater idea that the poet is is trying to give is that is that what's being said I definitely feel like the discomfort that somebody could feel in reading this if they knew things about poetry and how poems were meant to be structured. (laughs) I definitely feel that if you make somebody uncomfortable in art, it's typically an intentional choice. And in a case where the subject matter of the work is about dealing with the discrepancy between I need to fit in because if I don't fit in, my children are screwed and I'm screwed and it's going to be deeply uncomfortable for me to go through my life like this. And also, she says it's a dead end at the end. That that assimilating, this attempt to assimilate, it, it doesn't go anywhere. And it doesn't go anywhere. Because ultimately, I'm white passing. White passing. But even then, a lot of the time when I interact with white people, depending on who I'm interacting with, once they find out that I'm Chinese, they do reassess me through whatever ugly stereotypes that they have in their head. Even as a person who looks white. Sometimes. Most of the time. Probably. Depending on who I'm talking to. Can you tell that I have a complex about this? It's not possible to assimilate. It doesn't function like that. And Victoria Chang recognizes that in this poem. I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. My brain's broken. It's all good. I feel like you took a journey and I was there with you all the way. Thanks, man. Nice. Anyway, the discomfort's intentional because the discomfort, I assume, mirrors the... I mean, I only know one discomfort, so I can't really say. But, you know, the discomfort that somebody could feel in reading this poem is... It reads to me as an intentional choice to try and get the reader to understand the discomfort of trying to hold two completely incompatible thoughts in your head at once and also practice them. Yeah, the poem structure in and of itself, I think, then becomes a metaphor for for everything Angelica was just talking about. I might be reaching here, but the way that there is a gap sort of in the middle of what should be linear and fluid ideas, it almost kind of reminds me of if your native language is in English and you're trying to find the right word. And obviously this is this poem is in third person, but it also clearly goes into Barbie Chang's head. And I kind of wonder, you know, it honestly kind of reminds me of when my mom is struggling to find the right word when she's trying to communicate an idea in English. Oh, oh, what's the right word? Uh, shopping, you know. And another example is it says green one and orange one in purple matching floral Barrett. And I'm like, what's... I don't know what a Barrett is. And, you know, maybe she's using that word poetically, but it is also kind of, it might be intentionally somewhat awkward word choice. Well, you don't know what a Barrett is because you're in... Maybe. Maybe I'm just an ignoramus. No, it's because you're ha- you, you don't have long hair. Oh, is that is that a thing? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I feel so stupid. It's a hair thing. It's literally just a little hair thing and you just go... Ch- okay, well, never mind then. Hey, you know what? Death of the author. Should we have done pronouns? Oh yeah, do you, does everyone want to do their pronouns? I'm sorry, I know everyone's pronouns, which is why... <laughs> my pronouns are she her my pronouns are also she her my pronouns are also she her he him okay cool i think to circle back to what amory was saying though that's something really interesting that i don't think i would have picked up on but it does resonate with me that the some of the pauses do feel like it could be somebody searching for the right word in a language that isn't their their native language. That was really astute. I think that kind of plays into what my main focus reading this poem was, because as everyone knows, and people listening know, poetry is not my favorite thing to analyze. Interesting subject matter for a podcast, Ben. <laughs> well, it's, it's more convenient, right? Because this conversation isn't just going to be about poetry. But I also, it, it emphasizes each word to me too. The break, I get different things from each line and I, I like that. 
to reach to touch, Barbie Chang would never admit it, but the but is emphasized there, seemed enough. But you're right, it's like thinking, it could be just thinking for the, the right word. But also, okay, sorry, sorry guys, I'm ADHDing. <laughs> Girl, me too. I know, I know. Talking about word choice here, I think that this poem itself, and I know that this is a part of a larger narrative, but let's look at it as though it is a singular contained poem. I think the word choice itself that is used here, things like the circle or... Very ominous. Yeah, it is ominous. The idea of flu, even the idea of... He does a very good job at capturing the feeling of interacting with the white people who wear boat shoes, fucking sparries to French class. She definitely does. You definitely get the sense of some sort of white suburbia. I too think of them as a mysterious cabal. Yeah, the word the circle, right? And it's capitalized. It's super duper ominous, but also circles are weird because they're so contained. And for me, it really invoked the sense of otherness, I guess, because you're either inside the circle or outside. So she's outside the circle staring in. And then the idea of the auction was also interesting to me. The fact that this takes place at a school auction, because the fact that she feels so uncomfortable specifically at an auction felt symbolic to me somehow. I'm not entirely sure how, but this idea of everyone putting in the highest price for something felt like a weird rich white person thing. I don't know. Did that raise any flags for anyone else? Yeah, auctions definitely connote elitism to me. And I'm sure this isn't, I mean, this is like a school auction. So I'm sure this this isn't a fancy one where you're bidding on like a yacht or something like that. But even so, I I think that's done very intentionally to sort of suggest that even at, you know, something as innocent as a school auction where the stakes probably are not very high, she still feels like such an outsider at this relatively innocuous event. They're bidding on a $20 Texas Roadhouse gift card and this person's about to throw up. Barbie's about to because it's stressful having to deal with that. I think too, diving deeper into this idea of inside and outside, a line that really sticks out to me that sort of encompasses all of this is thinking she could overcome being classified, thinking she could be an agent of her own classification. Reminds me both of the sort of inside outside circle thing, but also I think reminds me of the auction where everything is classified. And, you know, typically at auctions, you have tiers of things. And a lot of times people behind the scenes design auctions specifically with a very classist lens thinking about okay we'll have the low tier stuff so that everyone feels included and then the middle tier stuff so that the middle class people can feel special and then we'll have really the sort of the big money makers that speak specifically to our our richest patrons and where we're really going to make the big bucks and i think the idea of having to classify oneself in order to attempt to circumvent being classified by others really interrelates to the conversations we already had about trying to hold to and practice two separate and very different identities, but also relates to this auction being more nefarious than it seems from sort of the inside, potentially. Your point ties in well into what I was thinking about as auctions, yeah, being all about status and symbols. She can't ever reach the highest tier of hierarchy. Is that kind of what you were saying? I think so, but I think it also potentially is supposed to showcase the fact that when you're not kind of part of the circle, you think probably more about your own classification to others than if you are you know, traditionally part of the circle. And maybe this is unfair. I'm really stuck on this whole PTA moms thing, but I'm sort of also associating the circle with being simultaneously also of a higher economic class, you know, again, those waspy suburban moms. So maybe that's me 
<laughs> projecting too much onto who the circle is and could be. But I doubt people in the circle think about themselves in terms of classification. They're free of having to really navigate that for themselves. Whereas Barbie is not just aware of classification, but attempts to take agency over how she'll be classified. Yeah. And she feels like she's close, close to being able to be in there, in that circle, in that classification of free agency. No, it's achievable. It's theoretically achievable, but it's not practically achievable. That's what I mean. It could, but inclusion is entirely dependent on the in-group actually deciding to include you. And it doesn't shake out that way. And even then, the idea that you have agency in this country over how you are perceived racially, no, you don't. And it's, I, I really feel it's more indicative of the fact that white people don't think about being classified. Everybody else thinks about being classified, because if you get classified, it's probably going to adversely impact your life. Meanwhile, like, if a white person gets classified, they're like, oh, you're Italian. Oh, you're Irish. Who gives a shit? That's true. It's all just one label for white. Yeah, because it all comes out to the dead end in the end, right? That we were talking about earlier. That's what I meant. But I just, there's a line here that says exactly what Angelica said is what I meant. But there's a line here that makes me think that she almost thinks it's possible. To reach, to touch, Barbie Chang would never admit it, but she still wants to do this, this, this. And then, yeah, then it ends with the dead end. You can't do that, but it feels as though it could almost be in your grasp. I don't know. Does anyone else read the poem that way or am I reading it wrong? Well, the only obstacle to her actually being included is that the circle has to say yes. Yeah. Do we want to keep talking about the poem, Mikey? Do you have more guiding questions to lead us or are we satisfied and do we want to get into the meat? If you don't mind, I have something that I'd like to share about this poem. So this poem actually hit really close for me and made me think about my mom. So I'm going to tell you the story of the worst thing I ever said to my mom. I still think about it to this day. But when I was, I think, in third or fourth grade, you know, we would go on like class trips and things like that. And then most of the you know class moms who came in to be chaperones were white. And I remember this one time, my mom, I grew up in a single parent household. My mom worked a lot and she said, oh, you know, maybe I could come in and be a chaperone. And then I actually said this. I said, no, mom, you are too ugly. And that's the worst thing I've ever said to my mom. And I didn't realize until literally a few months ago that what I was really telling my mom wasn't that she wasn't physically attractive. Because first of all, I'm her son and I'm not thinking about my mom that way. But also that's not a requirement for being a class mom. What I was really telling her was, mom you're too Asian, you're too different, and you wouldn't blend in with the other moms and people are going to think you're weird. And I don't want people to think about me like that. I don't want that to affect the way my classmates think of me. I don't want them to see me as an outsider. Yeah, I I think I sort of, that's the worst thing I've ever said to my, I've ever said to my mom. And this poem hit me pretty hard because just, you know, imagine how Barbie Chang's kids probably feel about her and see her as an outsider and they're her kids. For somebody who actually has read the rest of this book, do we, is there context on how old is she? Is she referring to theoretical children in the future or is she thinking about actual children right now? I think it's bold of you to assume that any of us have read this entire book. (laughs) I don't know. Somebody made, somebody made some kind of mention as to there being more book 
that provided context. So, yeah, take a stab at it. Do the people who research this book know whether or not Barbie Chang is a mom at, during the time of the book? Because even then, there's there's also that kind of ever-present anxiety about even if you're even if you don't have children. At least in like thinking about my own childhood, my mom never went to any kind of PTA meeting or volunteered at school because she was too busy. But there was definitely that basic concern. I shouldn't say basic concern, but there's a, a deep-seated, let's say, concern about the welfare of your children and how your children are going to assimilate into this country. And I know that that is a thing that my mom thinks about. I don't know how deeply because I'm not her, but we've definitely had conversations going to the grocery store together about what she would tell me. She'd be like, I'm really glad that you're mixed race because it means that you get to experience more of this country, good and bad, or, you know, things along those lines. A thing that she would always tell to me growing up is I'm I'm glad that you're able to speak and read English in a way that I'm not because this has adversely affected my life. And I've always told you growing up, the two things that you need in America, you need to learn to read and you need to learn math. If you have those two things, you are fine. And so you're going to be able to go further. So like, just from the assimilation perspective, or when other people perceive you, you are less likely to be classified as part of the out group if you have these skills. And in that sense, your parents' attempt to assimilate is also kind of an attempt to assimilate your children preemptively. I was told the exact same thing by my mom. I studied piano performance in undergrad, which was a terrible life decision. But my mom always said, I don't need to worry about you because I know you can speak and read English well and you are decent at math. I also wanted to say, you said something really interesting about assimilation. I've noticed, I think I've actually probably been doing this subconsciously for my entire life. But when I go somewhere new, like a store where I you know, don't know anyone, I will usually make a point to say hi and try to reveal right off the bat that I don't speak English with an accent. And I guess that's sort of my own form of self-defense and assimilation. And it didn't really occur to me that that was me dealing with a microaggression until, or I, I didn't even think that that was a valid thing that I could feel, right? That I could be offended that someone would have a problem with me because I might not speak perfect English. No, that, that makes absolute sense. I used to work in a deli and nobody knew that I was Chinese until I accidentally huffed some spicy turkey juice trying to get the package open. I had to make my mom bring me my inhaler. <laughs> and when I come in, the assistant manager is like, oh, what are you? Where are you from? I'm like, hmm, hmm. here, bitch. I mean... I know that she wasn't doing it out of malice, but the very fact that that is a thing that we have to deal with is like, fucked up. I'm not going to say it's majorly fucked up. It is a degree of fucked up. Microaggression. I think Amory brought up a cool point that I want to talk, or I guess I want to ask you guys a little bit more about, about assimilating in terms of, you didn't really talk about this, but you talked about how you just assumed as a child that your mom, you said the words ugly, right? But you didn't mean ugly. You meant that she was different. But I feel like in a lot of the texts Maggie and I read, a lot of them talk about the idea of white beauty and the weird ways that women in particular and women of color get harassed or have microaggressions against them because of beauty. And I thought maybe it would be interesting to explore specifically how Asian women are fetishized and what particularly the, their type of femininity is seen as, I guess, and, and what the real world experiences are of that. Girl, let me tell you. When I thought I was a heterosexual... First high school, I had very low self-esteem. 
I dated a complete putz and that stupid son of a bitch was, that bitch had yellow fever. He was a fucking little coward man. He'd be like, oh, open your eyes. I'd be like, bitch, I don't even have a monolid. You can't even be racist right. Why don't you get your shit together? What? <laughs> First of all, you're being racist. Second of all, you're being very low effort racist, which is, you're not even trying. That might be like a really fucked up thing to say, but he would say shit about the fact that I am half Chinese. It was definitely partially a weird fetish thing for him. I absolutely believe that. Also, when I broke up with him, he tried to write me a fucking haiku because I told him he was boring. And he's like, no, I'm creative. Look at this. I'm like, bitch, I don't even like poetry. Yeah, Angelica was too good for that human in lots of ways. She was too hot for that human. She was too cool for that human. And that human was also just a real trash human. Oh, fuck. I forgot you knew him. Haikus are Japanese. Not what I am. Can't even fucking smush all of East Asia together, I guess, guy. That's an interesting topic, too, if you guys want to talk a little bit about that. The idea of, I know I've been guilty of it, of mushing all of East Asia together. Oh, it's because white people can't tell the difference between different kinds of East Asian unless they were killing people in Vietnam. Can we, you should play that King of the Hill clip. Do you want to tell us about the King of the Hill clip? Okay, so in King of the Hill, there's a character, Khan, Sufanusaphone, and he moves into this Texas neighborhood and everybody's like, so are you Chinese or Japanese? And literally no, every time he's like, I'm Laotian, I'm from Laos, and nobody can fucking absorb that, except for Cotton Hill, who, if you have watched the show, is a horrible, racist, sexist piece of shit who got no shins. And he knows immediately. He's like, oh, you're Laotian, aren't you, Mr. Khan? Because he spent so much time, you know, doing a kill, as the TikTok teens would put it. Okay, then let's go back a little bit to female beauty then. So you've had experiences being fetishized by different men because because you're Chinese, right? Men do say shit. Yeah. Which is uncool. And we've all, I think, seen various studies and articles about how... Although I will say it's not just men. Did I ever introduce you to the one whose car I crashed? Okay, so girls fetishize you too? No, just her. Oh, okay. So people fetishize East Asian women. But did you ever experience, I don't know, a, a desire to like look more white? Oh, hell no. See, I'm a very bad person to interview on this particular topic just because I'm homosexual. And so I, the beauty standards are different. And also part of, I don't know, in my own experience, I, I know for a fact that, okay, so if you walk into any sorority on any college campus, okay, well, I shouldn't say any sorority, but the vast majority of sororities on the vast majority of college campuses, because it's not every college either. If you go into a white sorority, all those girls are going to look the same. Completely indistinguishable from each other. And I believe, and I have believed this for a while, that that is because the beauty standard, whatever that, that blonde sorority sister beauty standard, they see that and they know that it's attainable for them. Whereas if you exist so far outside of that standard that you know that you're never going to be able to reach it, you have to find alternative methods of being hot because you're never going to look like that. And any attempts that you make to do so, it's not going to land right. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to force yourself into a shape that it wasn't designed for you. It's simply not achievable. 
So you give up, you find something else. I think I have a similar experience as a straight cis dude, <laughs> which is that the, I guess the Hollywood standards of masculinity are so, they feel so ridiculously out of scope for me. And I, I mean, look, I, I think that's a problem just with media in general, right? I don't need to watch a YouTube video about what Anthony Mackie eats in a day because he probably pays someone thousands of dollars a day to tell him what to eat. There's an issue in general with the perception of male body and things like that and like Hollywood standards. But with me being Asian, I, I should probably clarify that my parents are immigrants from Taiwan and I am fully ethnically Asian, I guess. Yeah, it's just I, I could never, ever fathom that I would be in that circle, that that would be something attainable for me. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's really relatable to a lot of people because I think beauty standards are very rigid. But that is interesting to see and to know too, because I think that when Maggie and I often read books from outside of the US, from, from different non-white cultures, there is a lot of emphasis placed on colorism. So it's positive to know, I, I don't even know if positive is the right word, but it's positive to know that you guys at least personally don't feel any pressure to try. Oh no, there's pressure. Oh no, don't say there's no pressure. There's pressure. You have to ignore it. You don't get a choice because if you if you don't figure out a way to not cave to that kind of pressure, you're going to go crazy. But there is pressure. So we also we talked a little bit very briefly about the idea of the idea of meshing all Asian cultures together. Have you guys experienced that? And what is the response? What should white people know? What should everyone know? Why is it important to recognize individual cultures and give them their say or like give them give them credit for their individuality? I would recommend not assuming that everyone is from China. I realize it's a really big country with a lot of people. I don't think that's a particularly good reason to assume that. And I say that as my parents are from Taiwan, as I said before, I don't, I'm not coming at that from the perspective of someone who particularly cares about Taiwanese independence. That's completely out of scope for me. I don't really know anything about that. Don't really have a position on it, honestly, but please don't do that. While we're at it, Please don't assume that people who look Indian are necessarily from India. They might be from Pakistan or something like that. You're just making an ass out of yourself. I mean, even like the concept of it. British people made that up. They made India up? Yeah. British people invented those borders. That is almost certainly not. The borders as they exist today of a lot of the places that were very heavily colonized by the British and other uh, whites, those were established pretty arbitrarily, actually. And that's not really how, at least my understanding is that that's, that's not how people would self-categorize. But I mean, like, that is also the timeline that we're living in. So a lot of people do categorize that themselves that way now because the borders exist. Uh, culture, interesting. National identity, interesting. Okay. The idea that all Asian people come from the same tradition is deeply inappropriate also, because even just in our own immigrant experiences, there's a huge difference between the kids who come over here as exchange students to U.S. universities in order to get an education, and people from my mom's generation who came over here because... I don't know what year she came over, but I know that they offered her a path to citizenship because Tiananmen Square happened and she was in university at the time and the US government thought that this would be a wonderful opportunity to poach a bunch of students. I want to make it extremely clear that this was not some high-minded thing on the government's part to be like, oh, those poor bitches at Tiananmen Square, they're so... No! We wanted to steal some fucking mathematicians and scientists, and then we did. But yeah, my mom's experience as somebody who came here as a student and got 
essentially lucky because the government was like, oh, let's steal some students. That's going to be a completely different experience from a Filipino family that came here because there's nursing opportunity. Our experiences are not the same. And so lumping us together in this idea that the idea that Asians, all Asians universally have some kind of uh, privilege over other races universally is not the case because depending on your particular circumstances and how you came to this country and what prompted you to come to this country in the first place or your family to come to this country in the first place, that's going to affect the way that you exist generally. There's a lot of Southeast Asian people who are doing extremely not hot right now but when they get lumped into the narrative of model minority east asian success that disproportionately affects them because now they're being excluded twice once on the basis of their socioeconomic status and then again on the basis of oh well they're asian they must be doing good so we don't have to help them like we have to help everybody else and of course, everyone in this chat knows this, but for our listeners who might, the model minority myth is really just a white supremacist tactic to attempt to turn people of color against each other to distract them from the fact that white people have orchestrated all of this as like a very careful societal hierarchy. They want us to fight for scraps, essentially, where if we can bark like dogs for them, they will let us live. I believe it's a pretty common alt-right or white supremacist talking point to say, oh, I'm not a white supremacist. If anything, I'd be an Asian supremacist. They get the highest SAT scores and they average the highest IQ scores. And again, even if those numbers are empirically measurably true, the problem is that, as uh, Angelica said before, that's ignoring history, right? So there have been around 80 or so years of anti-Asian immigration law in this country. And then when that lifted, a lot of people who came here, like if you're a rural farmer in China, you're not going to be thinking about coming to the United States, right? So a lot of the people who come here come for grad school or come for career opportunities, right? So then that belief that Asians are, you know, smart or whatever, first of all, whatever that even means, you're sort of what you're sort of seeing is privilege, really. That's something that I've had a lot of difficulty trying to communicate to my mom. My mom came here for grad school. She did an MBA and also a master's in finance. And she grew up very poor in Taiwan. But I've had a hard time communicating to her that, yes, you were very poor. And yes, for you to come to the United States, your parents had to you know, mortgage their house and stuff like that. But it is still a privilege. That would be completely unthinkable for people who are even poorer than you are. I think that where I'm going with this really is that I think that for me growing up, and also I would assume for a lot of privileged Asian people, there is a belief that the world is fully a meritocracy and that if you work hard and if you study hard enough, then you, you know, you're going to be doing great. And consequently, the, I guess, like the like logical converse of that is if you're not doing very well, that must be because you're not working very hard. And then that makes it very hard to understand like Lives Matter or, you know, other social movements that are sort of fighting against systematic oppression. Not to like speak for my mom or anything, but she's definitely told me in the past that she did not recognize that white people treated her different until years of living in this country. And so if you're coming to things from this perspective of, uh, okay, I'm coming from a system where I just had to do extremely well on a standardized test and that would get me into a college and everything would be good from then on because I got into the Harvard of China. And then you come to the United States, you are not primed to be like, oh shit, I'm being discriminated against. And if you're not primed for that, sometimes it takes you a while to see that. You kind of get the sense that there's this idea where like, assimilation is possible from more privileged 
people who do come here for grad school that they don't, I don't think they realize it yet in a lot of ways that white people treat them different, that white people are going to treat them worse. Not to make broad generalizations or anything, but... No, I I couldn't agree more. I I actually feel largely that me growing up, my understanding of race was sort of keep your head down and don't think about it too much because I was in a privileged position where I could basically be like, hey, you know, don't don't really worry about anything except not to. All right. Stereotypes, right? I played the piano a lot and I studied and uh, tried to get into a good school. That was basically the mission of my life up until I was 18. And I, I really didn't have to think about my own oppression. I think the the extent of it was that my mom did tell me when I was younger that if I were if it came down to me and a white dude for a promotion and one of us had to be picked, it would probably be the white dude. But you know, that that's still I, I don't want to call it a first world problem because it's still fucked up. But that is still a relatively niche issue compared to, you know, the way that black people are treated in this country, for example. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about that? Because there's a lot of I feel like the activism that's going on right now for AAPI is trying to mirror it, it's very deliberately painted as the same sort of activism as Black Lives Matter. But I'm not sure if that needs more nuance, because I think that because model minority myth exists, there has been a lot of, it seems like from an outside perspective, there has been a lot of pitting against cultures. Things that I've seen directly coming from people who are working in anti-racist work, who happen to be East Asian and are also advocating for this, they seem to present good nuance. But also, as you guys were talking about, this sort of cultural barrier feels like still exists. And I w- I'm wondering, I know Angelica has had really interesting conversations with me about racial hierarchy. And do you guys have any stances about that? How how do you add nuance? What is your take on that? Is this completely the same? How should people be fighting anti-Asian racism in a way that is nuanced and doesn't completely equate the experiences between Asians and and Black people? Because they are different experiences, but obviously Asian people have been racialized by white people since white people went into Asia. (laughs) I'd say we need to recognize that our problems are not necessarily the same as their problems, that we need to support each other because the system that surrounds both of our racializations in this country, it's the same system acting on us in different ways. And so I think that if we want to fight anti-Asian racism, I think we do have to also fight anti-Black racism. I think there's no way around it because it is the same system. You can't just dismantle part of the system while leaving the other portions of the apparatus standing. Otherwise, what? It's just going to come back to bite you in the ass. We see it biting us in the ass right now. Here's the thing about being a racialized minority in the United States is that even if things are good for you right now, they're not going to be good for you later. Before 9-11, we treated Middle Eastern people, I'm not going to say just fine, but the vitriol got extremely strong after 9-11. And now we're seeing that as the state media apparatus, the New York Times pushes this narrative of China being this threatening superpower as we see them not refusing to discredit the escape lab virus, I hesitate to call it a theory. They are essentially legitimizing and empowering anti-Asian sentiment in the United States amongst the general populace. 
while at the same time, of course, distancing themselves from such racism because how dare the media take responsibility for its own participation in portraying racialized populations as some frightening outsider. I think that for our white listeners, if you would, if you want to be an ally and you're equating the Stop AAPI Hate Movement and BLM as kind of the same, uh, you can use like the same tactics and the same messaging for both. I think that potentially you need to evaluate what your understanding of racialized systems in this country are, because in my experience, at the very least, hearing white America talk about this topic, white Americans tend to talk about Asian racism specifically almost as isolated incidences rather than a system that has been built into this country since at the very, very least a large legislative point 1790, but well before that as well. But instead, people talk about it as, you know, well, internment camps in 1943, that was really terrible. And, you know, we learned our lesson. And now, you know, it's it's 2020, 2021. And we're going to learn our lesson again without seeing all of the history and nuance and the system that's been built in of fear, essentially, of Asian Americans and Asian immigrants. And that history and nuance is different than enslaving of people and kidnapping of people and bringing them over here. So you have to really think about the ways in which the system has been rigged for and against people who aren't white, because those effects are different. So if you as a white person are trying to use the same messaging across the board, I think your anti-racism work really needs to take a pause and evaluate what hierarchy actually means. Because a lot of people will try and tell you that it just means that white people are at the top and everything else is at the bottom. But the system is more nuanced and exploitative than that. And that's, I think, a place where you probably have to start unpacking your understanding first before you can actually make meaningful difference. Please let me know if you guys have a different take on that. But I think to address Harmony's point about the ways in which white allies have been co-opting messages and blending messages, that's maybe where I would start the white allies (laughs) as a, a place of learning and advice. I think it's valuable to consider the racial hierarchy. I know that we refer to it as a hierarchy, but it isn't really a hierarchy because there's a lot of racialized groups that are kind of off to the side. That's essentially like what being a model minority is in this country. I guess that's kind of something being white and, and, you know, just, just kind of educating myself. Like that's something I have just kind of realized the fact that like the hierarchy does not really exist, right? Like it's two completely different planes. I feel like our Asian against I mean, white supremacy is is the main plane, but like our racism against Asian people versus our racism against Black people are two different beasts because of the historical context that goes in there. Because before America was founded, we were still racist against Asian people and we still othered them and fetishized them. And it it's a completely different context, as Maggie was saying, when you take somebody from their country and enslave them. Um and and build your country on that and make that your entire economy. That doesn't fit well, though, on a social media post. So how... Well, social media posts are probably not the best, uh, you know, media for communicating these ideas, you know? I mean, social media is essentially designed to break concepts down into their most fundamental building blocks with no room for nuance or discussion, really. Um, unless you want to start a shitstorm. I mean, I would say that if 
trying to break something down into like a pity slogan that accurately and easily gets the point. It's a fool's errand. It's just, I don't think that maybe people better at words can do it, but I don't know. I don't know about that one. I haven't seen it. I feel like we're seeing in this kind of age in the past couple of years a really weird dichotomy where if you aren't posting about major things on social media, then you have to, then you're silent and always. But then when you do post about things on social media, in many ways, it is performative activism because as Angelica was saying, you're just trying to boil things down to a pithy slogan and kind of calling that the education and context work you need to do. And I think that as large movements to address social change are using social media as a tool, this is one of those things that almost still needs to be ironed out. I don't know if I have more coherent thoughts about it past that, but I think that especially in the past couple of months, this is a conversation I'm seeing more and more and more that sharing resources and education and, and education on social media isn't actually really sharing resources and education because you get to just say that you've shared links to donate and stuff without actually prompting yourself to do any of those things or have meaningful conversations. You just get to say that you learned the very, very basics of it and move on from there. And that's like your good deed of the day. Read my card. It has all these links to resources that you can use to educate yourself. Okay. But like, I don't know. Education has to be a process where people learn from each other and interact with each other because I don't think that it's possible for any one. I don't think it's possible for any one source or set of sources to be able to accurately give people a picture of what what's going on. And even just like taken individually, like uh, even if you read like a shit ton, like you still need to like interact with people. Yeah, because education without action also doesn't do anything, which is, I think, another place of anti-racism work that we're seeing, especially white people start to like bump up against. Like, you could read whatever you want. You could read why I don't talk to white people about race anymore. You can read uh, all of these amazing seminal texts. But if you don't take those lessons and actually apply them to your life and try and take action afterwards, it doesn't mean jack shit. <laughs> Sorry, I've really now taken us on like, an entirely different journey away from where we started. <laughs> I guess I'm not necessarily, I mean, the social media conversation is something completely different. And I agree with everything you're saying. I do think it is helpful from an activism standpoint. I know that I've been able to like find protests and stuff only through certain pages, right? And there are like, there is information that you can disseminate through social media that you can't disseminate very easily elsewhere. But aside from that, and like, sometimes there is a place for a meme too. I guess what I'm worried about is the idea of anti-Asian violence somehow overshadowing Black lives. And I don't think that that's necessarily, like, I think that's a white people problem, to be clear. But I also... No, you go ahead. <laughs> Well, here's the thing, is that, like, we all exist as we are, and because we exist in our own bodies, experiencing our own lives, there's always that natural tendency to try and center our own problems above the problems of other people, even if our problems are... I don't want to... I don't even want to say, like, less less serious, because, like, 
it's it's tricky trying to find that balance between like how do you not minimize your own problems while also recognizing that other people's problems are actually way worse than yours and so like i i don't know what white people do but like because the i don't know my white family kind of doesn't center anybody but themselves so i don't i don't know what they do but i think that something that's valuable is to recognize the ways in which like we like as people don't speak over other people when it's not about them um if that makes sense wait, 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 wait. can you clarify that a little bit i'm sorry because my brain has trouble so we as people don't speak over people we don't talk about other people's problems it's not that we don't talk about other people's problems is that it's just that like we are we exist the way like I'm not somebody else and I don't experience their problems and maybe this is like uh, some pathology of mine but when uh, like maybe this is just a me problem that's possible um but like I for my own sake I hope that it's a human inclination to think about your own problems first and I think it's also important that we like make active steps to not do that. Although, if, if what I've just said is actually deeply indicative of a psychological problem on my part, please let me know. <laughs> I I feel like that's accurate. I guess I think the media in particular is really ignoring a lot of racialization and really even though these horrible things are happening and even well, though if we're talking media, then I would say that that's probably not to get conspiratorial about it, but that's probably an effort to distract and lead people away from Black Lives Matter. Um, because from my perspective, like, which is absolutely not objective, um, but it is my perspective, uh, Black liberation is actually a far greater threat to the American system than than stopping some vague and fuzzy notion of AAPI hate. And I say vague and fuzzy notion of AAPI hate because that is how the media has been framing it, as generalized hate against Asians and Pacific Islanders. It's not, it's not a matter of hate in the same way that anti-Black racism is not a matter of hate. Um, it's a systemic issue with systemic roots putting the emphasis on hate makes it a personal problem where oh this was this was simply the action of a couple bad apples all we have to do is stamp out their bad behavior and then we'll be good which is a gross oversimplification and in my opinion simply another way for these outlets to wash their hands clean of the vicious propaganda they've been spreading and have been complicit in spreading for the past what forever. Thank you, Angelica. That was very intelligent. And it did actually serve to answer a lot of my questions. Because you're, you're completely right. And I think that I think that like, we've known a little bit if we've been paying attention that people have started since COVID-19 happened have started being rude and, and horrible to uh, Asian presenting humans. But we haven't gotten any media I to I wouldn't say Asian presenting, unlike gender, 
race isn't really something that you present as or don't present as unless you're Gwen Stefani. Oh, um, <laughs> but, I'm sorry. People who look Asian? Is that better? Uh, people who are racialized as Asian. That's okay. also another thing is that like, I'm probably not like the best guest for this podcast because like, I don't get racialized as Asian. I get racialized as Hispanic. Go figure. Not Hispanic for the record. Italian. Emery, do you have any thoughts? You keep making your thinking faces. Hmm. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of levels to this. And in terms of, like, the actual acts of violence, it it's really hard to offer any kind of, like, advice for allyship because what you're fighting against is so stupid. And I think, like, um, Angelica, you, you talked before about, like, how uh, the guy you dated in high school, like, his stereotypes that he sort of, like, inflicted, like inflicted i don't know if that's the right word inflicted on you were like so stupid and it's like this poor you know asian grandma who's walking around in chinatown in new york city guess what guys guess what rocket scientists she has nothing to do with a lab with the lab in wuhan that you think created this virus she has nothing to do with this authoritarian government that's an ocean away so when it comes to like fighting against those acts of violence there's really i i can't even think of anything because like what like there's I don't understand the logic there where like someone would say, hey, I'm going to take out my anger on about COVID-19 on this poor lady who's walking around. Um, in terms of like, I think a more direct form of allyship uh, that I would recommend to people, I think one might be like, if you have any coworkers who are Asian American, um, and especially if they're something like contractors and they're here on like some kind of visa, if you make an effort to make sure that they are heard, and don't assume that they don't know what's going on because they don't speak perfect English or, you know, because they trip over a word. Give them a chance to uh, surprise you. Give them a chance to be heard. Give them a chance to have their say. And um, I, I think that's certainly like a good first step. Don't, I think with people like that, companies especially, but also I think it it starts with companies and it goes down to employees. We kind of think of them as like the help to some extent. And I know that's kind of horrible to say, but like, I think that's sort of how like contractors, for example, at like contractor, like software engineers where I work, for example, that's kind of how like they might be treated. And I think that's just awful and terrible. And like they, they should be treated like their voices matter. And the fact that they would tying it back to our discussions on how like everything is interwoven a lot of companies will use the fact that they hire a lot of Asian, specifically uh, contractors. They will include that in their diversity statistics so they can say, oh, what a diverse company. Meanwhile, like, where, where are the Black people? Where are the actually Hispanic people? Because you're certainly not hiring them. And also contracting is not the same as employing somebody on many, many levels. I've been a contractor, and even as a white person, there's definitely, you know, a, a very big difference in the way that you're treated as an employee. And I can say that I've had, I had a previous em employer, I had to do a lot of work with full-time employees to say, you have, we have many, many Asian uh, American contractors on our team, and you continually devalue their opinions. And you say it's because they're contractors, but in reality, you give me a lot more respect. So like, let's think about this really. So I feel like this whole idea of it, it, like contracting and diversity statements and all of this, like it's just virtue signaling 
all and take a look at who you're contracting versus who you're hiring full-time yeah exactly like look at the differences there sure to find something interesting I have nothing to contribute to this conversation because I've never worked with people who have like massive contracting contracts. But I don't think a contractor fucking sucks. But <laughs> yeah. This is because you stay out of corporate English. <laughs> okay, so being an ally at work, right? Trying to avoid and educate yourself about microaggressions. These are good tips that we have. If you see somebody hassling an old person on the street like an old asian person intervene you should be ready to throw hands i'm just saying because what we had in san francisco some weeks ago was this white dude started hassling this old lady and she had to beat him up herself she should not have to do that somebody else should beat him up for her just saying that happened here in New York City as well. So it's obviously happening everywhere. Are there any points that we really want to get to before we wrap up that anyone has? Do we want to do homework? I know that both of you guys have said that you have weird relationships to reading, so we don't have to ask the book question. But No, I don't have a weird relationship to reading. I just... If you <laughs> give me something to read, I'll read it. <laughs> I'm just stupid. You're not stupid, Angelica. You're one of the smartest people I know. Um, okay. Harmony and I typically end every episode <laughs> with homework, is is what she's trying to say. Uh, so Harmony and I will probably do do homework. If you guys feel like you have homework as well, feel free to share it, but don't feel or like you have Or if you have homework for listeners. Yeah, or if you have homework for listeners. Harmony, do you want to start? What's your homework for this week? Huh. Or do you want um, me to start? I, I want you to start. I want you to start. That's chill. Okay. Uh, I guess circling back to homework I had a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to continue to work with some of the organizations I already work with regarding gun violence and how they've been addressing, especially the unfortunate incident that happened in Atlanta and divorcing it from its racial intentions and really painting it in with other mass shootings that are perpetrated by and um, are largely against white people. Um, because those initial conversations were kind of met with surprised Pikachu face, which like wasn't the ideal way to start. Um, so I'm doubling down on that and working with those organizations to encourage them to have more nuanced takes on um, gun violence issues that don't affect white people, um, but are still perpetrated by white people because there's a lot of work to be done there. And I think that if we can get some of these larger fundraisers on board, we can maybe get some more legislative pressure on and the world will just generally be like maybe at least a 0.01% better place. I think that that's what I'm going for at this point. The bar, the bar is kind of low, but you know how it goes. All right, your turn, Harmony. Um, I'm going to reconnect with some of the organizations that I was involved in over the summer and see how I can volunteer to help, you know, anti-racism and fighting white supremacy in an actionable way and hopefully people who are smarter than I will be like this is the right thing to do you do this and I can actually help and know that I am helping because somebody will tell me that this is will be helpful so yeah be aware of self-segregation I think and when you do encounter people of color don't go out of your way to point out difference 
because I think that's where a lot of microaggressions end up stemming from, from like, quote, yeah, unquote, white people. I wouldn't go up to a white person and point at them and be like, bald. So, like, yeah. <laughs> we're not weird about shit. <laughs> any, does anyone have any homework for our listeners? Amory, okay. <laughs> oh, wait, is it homework for listeners or homework for us? Or, sure. I'll share a homework for me. Uh, so I volunteer with an organization called Black Girls Code. I actually hold a leadership position. Um, I am the, uh, it's called the curriculum lead of the New York chapter, which means I help with some of our programming and making sure that our volunteers um, are well-prepared. Um, I Please do check us out. And if you are either a technical person or if you're not, or uh, but you have some background in like UX or project management or anything similar, please consider volunteering for us. Um, I consider it, it very, very important for me because uh, a solidarity um, between people from minority of minority ethnic backgrounds, but also um, I realized that uh, when I was learning about Black Girls Code, no one has ever implied or said to me that I'm too dumb to code because of the color of my skin. Um, you know, like that kind of that's never happened for me. And uh, I sort of, it breaks my heart to think that that might happen for young black and brown women. So please do consider looking into us and uh, volunteering. All right. Uh, is that all folks? I think that's all folks. I don't have anything intelligent to add. You're very intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point, I don't have anything intelligent to add. Bye. Goodbye. Wait, are we going to have like, wait, are we Hope was out dirt in my mouth, sing a little ditty when I stroll down south. Bone removal without approval. I found your name and address on the Google. I'm done. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.